as you know, we're in the study of Ecclesiastes. Now, I want to make a couple of prefatory comments again. Um, what we're doing here in this book is we're following what Solomon is doing. Let's use a figure of speech. He's on a journey, and we're joining him in this journey. You know the answer to a lot of these questions. You know the answer to a lot of the dilemma that he finds himself in. But I don't, I don't want you to blurt out, I know all the answers, and I don't really need this book. This is a book where we're looking at a man who was the wisest man who ever lived, but did not live wisely. And at the end of his life, he's reflecting on the decisions he made. And he's walking us through the process of realizing I, although was wise, I really live like a fool. And so as we explore each one of these categories, you may know the answers and you want to blur it out. It's almost like, well, I don't even need to study this. Then, then leave. <laughs> because what we're doing is we're on this journey with Solomon. We're trying to look at, at his life through his lens. He did not have all the revelation of God's word that you do, even though he was wise. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about the things that would happen. But what he, this is what he did. I had tremendous wisdom. How did I use all of this wisdom? In the service of God or in the service of me? And that's why this book is so relevant for the 22nd, 21st century, 2023 now. Because people that I rub shoulders with, and when I was in an academic role before I retired, I rubbed shoulders with people like, because their whole view was to enter to life as, as a good education. Now, it's not, I'm not against a good education. I lived my life committed to that proposition. But that's not all there is to it. And this is what Solomon is saying. If I, I lived my life as if God didn't exist, I lived my life and pursued things without God in the picture. That's why I've talked, and we've only had a couple classes, but I've talked about like a closed box universe. He's living as if God didn't exist. He's living for self. And so we're exploring this together. So I would ask you to bear with me and be patient and let me go through this with you. Even though you may know all the answers and you, you, you don't even think you need this, I think it's good for us to go through it together. So if that's all right that we do it that way, I would appreciate your cooperation and support as we go through it that way. Would you define the word wisdom as it relates to this book? <laughs> Well, in one sense, Fred, that's really not an easy question to answer. But uh, for the most part, wisdom, as I'm going to put it this way, as defined in the scriptures, not necessarily the way Solomon would at some point in his life define it. The Bible understands wisdom as taking the knowledge of un and understanding of God's word and applying it practically to our lives. It's the practical application of divine truth. And this was the tragedy of Solomon. And it's, it's, it's one of the, when you, we don't know where he was buried, but assuming if you would have written the epitaph, or what would you put on the gravestone of Solomon? Here lies the wisest man who ever lived. I wouldn't write that. I would say, here lies a fool who tried to live his life, or at least most of his life, without God in the picture. So he's made some observations. We're only in verse, we only know 11 verses, but he's made some observations. And that observation is at the beginning of the book, beginning of chapter 1, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And I, I talked about that Hebrew word, I talked about what it meant, but essentially there are a lot of different translations in a room like this, including those online, some of your translations might have meaningless. Some of your translations might have no purpose. Solomon is saying, everything about my life keeps driving me to this conclusion. It's meaningless. It's fruitless. It, it has no purpose. And, it, it's, and this is, he keeps... <laughs> As we get into chapter 2, he will finally bring God into the picture. But he's, he's living his life 
He, and he's not really living his life with God's glory in mind. He's living his life with his own personal glory in mind. He's not serving God. He's serving self. And yet, at the same time, he's trying to find purpose and meaning. And he says, you know, I look at life, and life's just like an endless cycle. It, we just keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again. People live, they grow up, they get old, they die. And he says, that's just the way na- everything in nature is a cycle. And that's what we looked at in, in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And he says, that's like, so he says, if everything's like in a cycle, that's kind of meaningless because it's just everybody's doing the same repetitive thing. What purpose and meaning and joy is there in that? That's kind of what he's asking. You follow me? And so he's just saying, every, everything, everything I do and everything I look at and everything I examine and everything I observe is just cyclical and it's a kind of a meaningless cycle. Everybody's in this cycle. And I don't see a lot of joy. I don't see a lot of happiness. I don't see, and then he's saying, in my own life, I didn't experience that. Instead, it's almost like he's saying, now he doesn't, he uses that word in chapter two, but it's almost like he's saying, all I see is despair. Now, I don't know how you guys are, but when I look at a lot of people I know that don't know Jesus Christ, that's exactly what I see. Despair. They don't have any purpose and meaning to what they do. And they're just in a cycle and they're caught. I had one guy say, I'm trapped in this cycle and I can't get out. What a horrible view of life. That's exactly what he says in the, in the first part of chapter one. I'm trapped in this cycle, just like the cycle of everything else, and I can't find any joy, meaning, or purpose in it. Well, so she clearly grew up in I may be wrong, but I mean, he, I, I'm beating around my, the question I really want to ask. But he he grew up in a, a Jewish and a Hebrew environment. Sure, uh, sure. And his father yeah. was David. <laughs> so I mean, did he have an epiphany at the end of his life? Is that when when did he write Ecclesiastes? Well, I can't give you a precise date. He dies in 931 B.C., but I can't give you a precise date. But all of the inferences that you draw from the study of the book, particularly as we get to the end of the book, it's when he was an older man. But there, there is no, uh, I mean, we cannot discern, I know your word's an epiphany. We can't discern an epiphany. But you know, isn't it true, as people get older, they begin to think a little more deeply about the meaning and purpose of life. Because there's one thing facing them. Death. I one of in my Bible study I had it this morning at 6:30, one of the guys who's an executive in a big company here, his mother died over the holidays. And uh, she was an older lady, she had cancer, so it was not an unexpected death. But he was telling me as we were walking out of where we have our class. He was saying the, the thing that was amazing for me was we all, meaning the children, gathered around her bed. We sang and prayed and read scripture together, and then she just passed. And he said several of the nurses on that floor of that hospital came up to said, you know, you are really an unusual situation for us. Because most of what we observe is families are fighting among themselves. There's bitterness. There's anger. The person who's dying is angry. But they observed a woman who knew the Lord Jesus was, this was her words, waiting to just go home. She, John was telling me she had had a heart attack, and that's what put her in the hospital. And she said, John, did I have a heart attack? Yes, Mom, you did. Oh, good. That means I'm going to go soon. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You know, but yeah, I mean, she was 90, I don't remember, 94, something like that. But, you know, she had lived a full life. I believe believers in Jesus Christ die differently than unbelievers. I've been in many hospitals with unbelievers, and there is a big difference. I know the situation when my mom died, my dad died, Peggy's mom died. They all died within about two years. The difference was amazing. And that's what Solomon, near the end of his life, you're pressed with that issue. And that's why I don't honestly, and I, I hope you'll understand the spirit in which I'm saying this. I don't understand how an unbeliever can handle death. 
I don't know how they handle it. And I think a lot of times they don't handle it. That's what those nurses were telling John and his family. What those nurses were observing about that family is not what they typically observe. Typically observe. And so, Rob, the answer to your question is it had to be all of the things that are associated, I think, with getting older, facing the – and realizing, I know God. My father taught me about God. Even with all my father's inequities and fallen uh, sinful behavior, he still knew what it was like to walk with God and experience his forgiveness and grace. And I guess what drove Solomon back to a relationship with God. Now, verse 12. Chapter what? Of chapter 1. Verse 12. And so he brings up this issue of wisdom. But now, this is really important. This is really important. Most of what he's talking about here is human wisdom. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, that's similar to what he said at the beginning of the book, but this is one of the verses that helps us to identify this as Solomon. Now, I want you to observe verse 13 and let your eye slip down to verse 17. I applied my heart, and he says it again in verse 17, I applied my heart. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting statement, and it's an interesting declaration, because heart is not that little organ in the center of your chest that pumps your blood through your body. It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. And the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament consistently uses it in this way. The heart is the center of your life, the center of your inner life, the center of your life that enables you to make decisions, the center of your life that governs your will. The Bible speaks of loving the Lord our God, the Old Testament, Jesus says it in the New, loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember that? Which is the whole encapsulation of a human being. Heart, soul, mind, strength. That's all parts of the human being. Strength is the physical. Mind is the intellect. Soul is the emotion. And heart is the center of your will. So what he's telling us here, I applied my heart. This was an intentional, willful decision on his part, and notice the verbs, to seek, to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I applied my heart to seek and to search. There are two infinitives in Hebrew. What it means is this is thorough, This is disciplined. This is comprehensive study. So if today, if you're going to apply your heart as a decision, an intentional decision of your will, to seek and search out wisdom, what would you study? Well, you would study philosophy. You would study history. You would study science. You would study literature. Solomon tells us in in 1 Kings, uh, uh, Solomon tells us in detail what he did. I mean, he studied everything. And so this particular verse would indicate this isn't something he did in just a day. This was a major part of his life. He was brilliant. He was intentional. He was disciplined because he says... All that is done under heaven. This isn't a cursory study, picking up a newspaper, reading what happened yesterday. I'm making that up, but you know what I mean. This was a thoroughgoing, comprehensive, disciplined study. And then what does he say? It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Well, if anything make you want to quit studying, that's what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. The more you know, the sadder you get. That's right. As a matter of fact, the actual Hebrew 
of uh, I read from the ESV translation, unhappy business, is really the actual Hebrew is a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden God has given. You see, you, you have to separate this and think about this for a minute. Let's just start from this, this perspective. God has created everything. Does God want us to seek to understand his physical world? Of course he does. Of course he does. And one of the aspects of the history of the human race, it's a fun thing to study, is to look at in human history how humanity over now approximately 5,200 years of recorded history, how humanity has uncovered a greater and greater and more accurate understanding of what God has created. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Webb telescope that was just launched here. You know, that's fantastic. Aren't you familiar? You, you look at the photos of the Hubble telescope, they were great. You look at the photos of the Webb telescope, they're unbelievable. And what we're seeing things that no human being has ever seen before. Question. It's created more information. It's created greater detail. Has it produced comprehensive, finite, exhaustive understanding of everything in astronomy? No, it raises more questions. You see, the more you study, the more you realize, I really don't know very much. When I entered, when I was doing my theology, graduate theology degree, it was a four-year program. And I remember there was a little student newspaper, one of the guys who was a, a senior, a fourth-year student, Finishing theology. So I started my theology education my first year. I think I, there's a few things I need to brush up on, a few things I need to learn. By the end of the first year, I realized there's an awful lot I don't know. By the end of the second year, I realized, you know, there's, there's really quite a bit I don't know, but boy, I'm at the right place. I'm learning, so this is really good. By the end of the third year, I really came to the conclusion there is a great deal I don't know. I'm only scratching the surface. He's about to graduate. This is what he said. I now realize I really don't know anything at all. Now, that's humorous. It's a little bit of hyperbole. But, you know, that is, that is really true. The more you study, whatever it is, and he's doing a very comprehensive study. That's what to seek, to search out. They're words of comprehensive, exhaustive study. He says, this is a heavy burden, a heavy burden that God has laid on us to understand his world. That's why it is silly. It is silly for human beings to have pride about what they know. To believe that because I know a great deal, I'm really kind of a superior person. No, you're not. What Solomon says, the Bible says this, the more you know, the greater it should produce humility. Because you really realize how much you don't know. That's why Solomon said it's a heavy burden. It's, a, it's, it's, an, it's a, an unhappy business. Unless, and he's not here yet. We're not here yet in his journey. We're not quite there yet, but when God gets into the picture, it's a whole different. I had a friend who was a, uh, uh, he was a PhD in physics. That's what he taught. But he was a strong believer, and he loved his job because he said, now I'm going into the office today. I'm going to teach my classes, but I'm doing some research because I'm studying a little more deeply God's world. What a joy to do. What a, the right perspective to have. I mean, he was a tremendous scholar. He was really, a, really, a brilliant guy. But he had the right perspective. One of the greatest scientists of, of, of our age was Sir Isaac Newton. He lived in the 1600s for the most part. And he's, you know, you know the whole laws of physics that he discovered and you understand. But you know what, what is, it is confounding to his biographers. Isaac Newton spent more time studying the Bible than he did physics. He wrote books of prophecy. 
He, he, he studied the prophetic scripture. He was trying to understand God's revelation. He said, I studied the two volumes of God's revelation. Volume one is his creation. Volume two is his word. And he said they both agree. Now, he had, there were some issues that some of these conclusions that I think most of you agree were probably not correct. But that, that, there is a guy who has the right perspective. I'm studying the two volumes of God's revelation, and they don't disagree. There's joy in doing that. Solomon's not there yet. This is unhappy business. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. He's used those metaphors before. Vanity is striving after wind. Can you ever catch the wind? Most of you know the answer to that, but nobody's answering. You can't ever catch the wind, can you? Okay, yes. So look at what he says. In verse 15, uh, in, in, in uh, I already covered that. Yeah, in verse 15, it's a proverb. For in much what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. What does he mean by that? It's a proverb. All my knowledge... All my study, all of the conclusions I've reached about God's world, you know, I really can't fix anything. That's where the phrase, it is what it is, comes in. Yeah. In a way, that's true. More and more like one step forward and two back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all human effort, all human achievement cannot correct the irregularities and deficiencies of the human condition. You know, that now I, 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 I'm not getting into politics here, and I don't want to do that. I just want to use this as an illustration. <clears throat> Especially in the last several decades, the approach that state governments and national government, to some extent local governments, you have a problem, you have a social problem, this is how we're going to solve it. We're going to throw a lot of money at it. Now solve the problem. So you throw a lot of money at it, what do you see? That's all the problem. That's worse. It, it often creates additional problems and additional irregularities that then you got to do something else to solve that problem which you just created by throwing a lot of money. Again, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be political. It's just that's the approach. Because what's, what, what Solomon is saying here is, all of my study and the comprehensive, exhaustive way in which I was approaching it, go back to the verbs to seek and to search out. This wasn't cursory. This wasn't superficial. This was an in-depth study. And I reached the conclusion. I really can't fix anything. I really can't correct any of the deficiencies of the human condition. That's profound. That's as relevant in 2023 as it was in about 920, excuse me, 940 BC or so, whenever he wrote this. The temporal, finite, sin-cursed nature of the human condition is not solved by knowledge. He's not proposing a solution here. That doesn't come to the end. He's just saying, in my life, in all my study, this is what the conclusion I reached. That's a very humble conclusion. It's an accurate conclusion. And that's a conclusion that I would like to see even Christians in the 21st century reach. Human effort can alone... Human effort alone cannot correct anything when it comes to the human condition. <clears throat> of course, that's ultimately why the Father sent the Son. But we're not there yet. That's not where he's at in his, in his study. Now, he does something else. He's not done. I said in my heart, now there again, I'm in verse 16 now. 
This is like phase two of his search using wisdom for the meaning and purpose of life. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who over Jerusalem before me. Okay, that's a factual statement. That's an accurate statement. It's a personal reflection. Solomon knew that he was a wise man. That's not proud, pride. That's not audacity. That's factual. I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. This has is, this is caused him to reflect and make very wise decisions. And if you go back in you know, the early reign of Solomon's uh, kingdom, you remember the, the two women that came to him that, with the baby, remember that? And how he made that as an illustration. That was a wise decision on my part. So he's, he's not patting himself on the back. He's just recognizing something. I am a wise man. So verse 17, with this wisdom that I have, that I have manifested and the kingdom has seen and the kingdom has manifested, with this wisdom, I applied my heart. There's that phrase again. It's intentional. It's got a clear direction. It's well thought out to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, let's think about that for a minute. What's he doing? He said to apply my heart. So this is intentional on his part. He thought this through. This isn't, this isn't frivolous. It is impulsive. This is a thought through, well thought through, intentional decision of his part. I want to study something. I want to observe something. The wise person and the fool. Wisdom and madness, folly. I perceive that this also is striving after women. What? What, Solomon? <laughs> Isn't it obvious you should be wise, period? Your study, your observation leads you. It's obviously wise. It's obviously, it's obviously best to be wise. Well, that's that's not what he's going to conclude yet. For in much wisdom, this is a ridiculous word. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now I don't know. In the last 20 years, if I've ever heard anyone use the word vexation in a sentence. Do you? Sure. Vexation, it's, but it's, you know, ESV translators, it's a good translation, good translation of that word. But the idea of vexation is deep mental anguish. That, you know what that means. That you understand. For in much wisdom is much Mental anguish. Now, I want to remind you of something I said earlier. The wisdom that Solomon is talking about here is human wisdom. He's looking, studying, observing, delving into human wisdom. And in human wisdom, there's a lot of mental anguish. And he who increases in his knowledge increases sorrow, sadness of heart. Why? Now, if you're not familiar with this word, I think I've used it before, but I'm going to use it here. The word of heart is what he's arguing here. Human wisdom produces hubris. Isn't that a great word? It's one of my favorite words. It's a Greek word that we brought in English. A lot of people use that word. Hubris is arrogant, defiant pride. Aristotle, is goes way back, Aristotle said that is the greatest sin of the human race. A lot of the early tragedies and a lot of the tragedies that you read in William Shakespeare's plays 
are about that. This leads to self-destructive behavior. So what Solomon is saying, in all my study of human wisdom, I've realized nothing but mental anguish and sorrow. Now, we don't know yet. We don't know in his journey. It's going to start coming up now as he starts to flesh it out and explain it. How it took him a long time to realize this. But this is exactly where most people are today. Hebrews. Arrogant pride. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at what I have produced. Look at what I have done. So your earlier statement, hubris, is produced by knowledge, accomplishments? Yeah. Human wisdom, human knowledge can produce hubris. It comes from the soul, from the heart. You can be ignorant and still have hubris. Oh, heaven, Jess. Oh, heaven, Jess. His focus here is you know, particularly his intentional investigation of all to see, to search out, go back to that early verse in this paragraph. He's, you know, what, <laughs> what it's really produced is uh, mental anguish and sorrow. Does it bring on more anguish, sorrow, if you have a biblical world you have? Grounded in you know, human wisdom as opposed to human wisdom. Well, what do you think? What do I say? I think yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're. I didn't mean to no, embarrass you there, but I mean, you already know the answer to that question. Yeah. But Solomon's not there yet. He's going to start bringing this up in the next chapter. I'm going to bring God into this picture. So far, we haven't seen him bring God into this picture yet at all. And see, this is. I mean, I, a good chunk of my life, I was around academic people with PhDs and all that. Some people had a couple of PhDs. But, you know, that, that's exactly, they're, they're filled with hubris. And I don't mean necessarily the school I led, but in other institutions I was involved with over the years. And I, I observed something that the most intelligent, gifted people in this area are sometimes the most foolish people I've ever been around. Because they know a lot about what their discipline is, and they're, they're good at it, and they're often published in it, but they don't know how to live life. Their lives are incredibly dysfunctional. Their lives are filled with unhappiness, and they don't have joy in almost anything they do. Now, that's a broad stroke statement. This is what Solomon is saying. Human wisdom and human knowledge Produces mental anguish, produces sorrow. Jim, don't you think that separates those people from relations with other people that are that are normal and uh, where you want to learn from other people? If you're humorous and prideful, it doesn't it shut down. Your receptivity, other ideas. Yeah, like I'm smarter than you, so why should I listen to you? Okay. I think that's one of the reasons why. You know, again, this is a stereotype. It isn't always this way, but sometimes why you think of professors as living in the ivory tower, having almost no connection with anybody else. Fred, if I had a choice, as I love to study. I would lock myself in my office and just stay there and study all the time. Because I love to do that. That's not what God wants me to do. So, but yet so many professors, and again, these are broad stroke statements. There are lots of exceptions. But that's exactly right. They have very little connection. Many of them don't have really good interpersonal relationship because they're just in their own little world that they've created with their own little academic pursuits. And that, again, that's a stereotype, but often that's the case. This is what Solomon is commenting upon. I have studied, I have done a thorough, intentional seek and search out. Go back to those infinitives in verse 13. And this is what, this is a conclusion I've reached. The more I know, 
the more frustrated I am. The more human wisdom I attain, the more mental anguish I experience. Because listen, human wisdom and human knowledge alone dethrone God and deify the human. Now that, do you understand the language I'm using there? Solomon, that's in effect, that's what he's saying. Because so far in his investigation, God isn't in the picture. Dethrones God and deifies the human. So then you have to qualify knowledge to within worldly experience, the worldview, not knowledge of God. That's right. Your knowledge is in the closed box. And you're not saying there's something outside the box. And see, this is the challenge in, the, in this postmodern, post-Christian culture in which we live today. Because that's how most people are living their lives, is if my box is closed. I am the center of the world. This narcissistic, postmodern, autonomous individual. And all of the social media allows you to construct your own reality. And that reality may or may not include God, but most of the time it doesn't. And it's, it's the tragedy of human hubris because you've dethroned God and you've deified yourself. Now, I'm using lamp. People don't necessarily talk like that. But practically speaking, that's exactly what's happened. This is what Solomon is saying. So far in his journey, he's not bringing God into the picture. And this is what he's concluded. And he's absolutely spot on. Because, you know, somebody that becomes an authority in a little area. I mean, I, to get a PhD, you have to write a doctoral dissertation. And I did that. It's a fairly stressful time. I devoted two years of my life to it. But you know what? I bet five or six people have read my dissertation. Nobody else. Nobody cares. Who cares what I did? I mean, it's just that's, yeah, I, you know, I really know that subject. So, because I'll tell you, in my discipline, to just try to keep up with all of the journal articles and all the books that are written about, you cannot possibly do it. So what does it produce? Mental anguish and sorrow. Because that's exactly what it produces. You cannot keep up with human knowledge. You cannot do it. Isn't it wonderful to know our God is omniscient? And knows everything. I'm not going to be like him. But look at the positive. But does God delight in my pursuit of truth, in your pursuit of truth? Does God delight in our pursuit of knowledge and understanding his world? Of course he does. We're created in his image. He delights when his creatures are pursuing truth. But with the understanding in humility, you're never going to know everything. So it's there, there's just that 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 wonderful balance that we we seek as Christian. God delights in my study, my pursuit of truth, my greater understanding of His world, but the humility aspect that I'm never going to know it all. I'm never going to master it all. That's not going to happen. But there's that joy. That's what. See, what Solomon is saying as we close out verse 18, would you say he's achieved satisfaction and contentment? No. He's experiencing grief, anxiety, and frustration. Because in his journey, he's not yet factoring in God. When it's all in my life in 1972, when I came to know Christ, and then in the years that followed, as I studying God's Word, started to fit all the stuff together, all of a sudden, everything in my life had such a different perspective to it. And the joy of doing what I love to do, which is study and all the other things that I do in my life, it, 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 it's a dimension I never, ever experienced before. Never. Now, well, I'll tell you, now it's been a long time, 1972 is a long time ago. I never want to go back to what my life was like before 1972. Never. 
And it's been a journey. I mean, there have been lots of ups and downs. But this was Solomon. It's, it's a, this was a profound paragraph for us. Verses 12 through It's a profound paragraph. It's a paragraph every 21st century person should read. Every academic person should read this and try to understand what is the point Solomon making. And when you really did, oh, man, he is absolutely right. Okay? Everybody on line, everybody with me? All right, there's silence everywhere, but I'm going to press on. All right. Let's move to chapter two. I did have one question. Yes, please. Um, the last, last verse. Last verse 18? Yeah. Let me um, explain that when you increase your knowledge, you increase sorrow. I'm assuming you mean from the secular per- perspective. Because the more you study the word, the deeper you get into the word, actually, the more at peace I think you are. But can you give me more context on this? Okay, no, wait. I'm not sure, Glenn, I'm completely understanding your question. Are you asking the question as a Christian? I mean, from a Christian perspective? No, from a, what he, what Solomon's writing here, why is it saying that if you increase your knowledge, you're increasing your, sol- your sorrow? Well, I, again, I, I, I think his point is the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't really know. Okay. And that creates the frustration. And ultimately, and, you know, they're, the ESV people are translating that word sorrow. But the more, the more that creates almost a sadness. You could translate the term, Hebrew term that translates sorrow, sadness. Because it's, I, I, I'm, ne- I'm never going to master all this. And it creates a sadness and a sorrow that ultimately, Glenn, I'm using it now from a from a biblical perspective, ultimately comes because we're finite creatures. And finite means limited. And we're never going to understand everything. We're never going to have comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of anything. And so when you realize that, again, if God's not in your picture, that does create a degree of sadness and sorrow. Does, are you, uh, Glenn, uh, uh, Fred has a question, but Glenn, does that make sense? It does. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. And if God is your goal, that's, that helps get that through. But if, if knowledge is your goal, comprehensive knowledge, that you realize the utility of it, you'll never, ever really even get one second of it. That's right. That's right. Learn, understood, and be able to talk about it independently. Because That's right. You haven't gone to. That's right. And it it doesn't mean that the pursuit of knowledge is wrong, but it's the pursuit of knowledge as a creature who's finite and dependent on God where I'm bringing God into the picture. I mean, it's, I'm qualifying it, but that's where this joy, my friend who is a physicist who's with the Lord now, but that's, that's how he looked at what he did. He understood his finiteness. I am never, ever going to understand all this. And that's what's been so interesting for me as I've been reading and looking at these wonderful photographs that NASA produces from the Webb Telescope. All this is doing is just producing more questions. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, I love it. I love astronomy. When I retired, my wife gave me, my her retirement gift she gave me was a telescope. I mean, I, I love that, but I, I understand about the smallest part of astronomy you can possibly imagine. But it's fun, but it, it just raises more questions. And that's the thing. The more you study as a human being, the more questions it raises. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. No, it keeps you going. If, and if, if God's in the picture, then you start to say, I used to teach my students, you face an issue of life, the very first question you should ask yourself, has God spoken to this question? And how do you find out the answer to that question? 
by going under his word. That's the right, that's humility. That's dependence. I realize my finiteness. I realize I'm limited. So I'm going to go to the infinite one to see if he can help me. Most people don't want to do that because of that. Now, we only have 10 minutes. Should we crack into chapter 2, or should we just dismiss and leave? <laughs> no, let's keep going. All right, let's crack into chapter 2. Notice the state. Before you do. Yeah, please. The, the web telescope yeah. looks deeper and deeper, but no one has ever seen God. That's right. All they're seeing is what he's made. <laughs> and notice first one of chapter two. Here we see that statement. I said in my heart. So here's this intentional, willful decision of Solomon. The next area. Come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. It's kind of like an imaginary monologue that Solomon is having with you and with me. His goal, let's use a word that's not used here, but I think it fits. Let's use the word hedonism. Have you ever heard of that word? If you're following your notes, I, 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 I printed the word there for you. But the word is hedonism. That's from the Greek philosopher and all of them. Anyway, it's the goal of life is the pursuit of pleasure. Now, that is not a foreign idea to Americans. It's not a foreign idea to anybody. It's a human being. But the, that the, the chief end of life is the pursuit of pleasure. And Solomon says, not heard that. I've read about that. In all my study, I come across that. So I'm going to try that. I'm going, to, I'm going to intentionally, I said in my heart, I'm going to intentionally that the chief end, the chief purpose of life is pleasure. To enjoy yourself. Now my goodness, again, we live in a, in a culture, in a, in a civilization, where that, that, that's kind of the whole idea of marketing products is the whole idea of so much of entertainment in our, in our world and our culture today. So this isn't a foreign abstract idea. We know exactly what he's saying. But behold, this also is vanity. So he says, this was my goal. And I've already reached this conclusion. Then he's going to tell us, how did I get to that conclusion? That the pursuit of pleasure is meaningless. Remember, that's what vanity kaleb in Hebrew means. Yeah. I don't mean to deviate a little bit, but I've never, uh, you know, the origin of things always interests me in the word hedonism or hedon. What's, what's the, uh, where did that word come from? What's, what's the root of it? It's a, uh, it's associated with a philosopher in Greece called Epicurus, and it, it relates to uh, that that which is centered in the genitals and the organs of the human body. So the word, uh, the, I mean, the root meaning of the word uh, Eden, uh, it has to do with uh, pleasure? Sexual pleasure. Oh, okay. The, sex, the sexual dimension. So that's not being after a green god or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yes. It is. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. It it is it is related to uh, its origins with a guy named Epicurus, but it is related to uh, to a Greek goddess. Yeah, it's oh, associated okay. with sexual pleasure. What's the name of the goddess? Hedon. 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 Okay. Okay. So it's a Greek god. Okay. So he announces his goal. Part of verse one, second half of verse one, he reaches a conclusion. Now he's going to tell us how did he get from here to there. Okay, so we're never going to get this done today, but we'll get started. Verse 2. <clears throat> I said of laughter, it is mad, and a pleasure, what use is it? Now again, he's announcing his conclusion. Here was my goal, first part of verse 2, now he's, he's, he's reaching his conclusion. 
So how did he go about this? How did he start? How did he begin this investigation? He began by permitting his by permitting his mind and his body to be affected by wine, to be affected by alcohol. So let's kind of put it the way we might put it today. He's as a part of pursuing hedonism, pleasure, human laughter. I'm going to stimulate my body with foreign substances. You know, I'm kind of putting it the way we would talk. So for you and me, it could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pornography. It could be fentanyl. Any, anything that's an outside stimulus to accelerate the pursuit of pleasure. So that's how he started. I searched my heart with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. So again, I'm trying to put it in the way we would maybe talk about some foreign stimulus to stimulate your mind, stimulate your body. Now, isn't that the main reason people take drugs, take fentanyl, drink lots of alcohol? look and become addicted to pornography. Do you follow what I'm saying? An outside stimulus. So Solomon is saying, this is really amazing that he's dishonest. I intentionally did this. In my pursuit of this goal, I intentionally stimulated my mind and my body. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. Maybe this foreign stimulus is what will bring meaning and purpose, which will enhance the joy of living. Does that sound like something written 3,000 years ago? That sounds like something written yesterday, doesn't it? Isn't it, seriously, man, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm just trying to write, isn't it amazing the consistency of the human condition? This is 3,000 years ago. Yeah, we don't change. This is, this is like somebody wrote this yesterday morning because it's exactly this is exactly where so much of the postmodern world is. Something, there's a stimulus I can buy that's going to give meaning and purpose and joy to my life. And another way of looking at it is self-medication of depression. Exactly. What do you say? Yeah. Self-medication of depression. Yeah. That, that's why a lot of people drink. Yeah, absolutely. Anxiety. Yeah. It's a stimulus. It's a stimulus to enable you to feel good about yourself at that moment. <clears throat> yeah, and have you? I'm sure you guys have, have you read about some of the situations with young, actually, not only young people, but some of these young guys, gals with fentanyl. I mean, it's just it's it's an an amazing. You think how can they? How could they be? You know, so stupid. Oh, I don't, that's not how I, I understand why you're doing that. And in a way, that's exactly it. <laughs> Everything about my life, my, my, my pastor, uh, my, my boss, who's the senior pastor of the church where I'm on staff, he was uh, called by uh, someone, it's a long story, but 32-year-old girl who has been addicted to drugs since she was in junior high school. I mean, she, I mean, her life's just an unbelievable. It's 32. Just think about that. And he was asked to come in by the family and meet with her 
And Matt does exactly what I do. I never meet with a woman without somebody else with me. I never meet a woman alone. That's a very unwise thing to do. So someone was with him, and, and they started talking to this, this, this 32-year-old girl. And she started talking about her life. That's exactly what it is. I never feel good about myself until I'm on drugs, whatever the stimulus was. But she, she was getting in more and more into the situation where she, was, she had a, the person who she was buying her drugs from, she wanted to break this off. So what this guy did was he got her all, all pumped up with drugs, raped her. She's now pregnant. She's 32 years old. She's pregnant. And what she's planning to do next week is get an abortion. I mean, just, you, you look at all of that. You look at that situation, just see the lie, the lie of Satan, if I can see, he doesn't bring that in here, but the lie of Satan, the one thing you need to deal with, to deal with your depression, how you feel about yourself is an outside stimulus, and it'll make you feel good about yourself. Satan's lie always is deceptive, promises what it can't deliver. What does it do? It's destroyed this girl's life. And when Matt and I were talking over the phone yesterday, what do you say? It's, it's Humanly speaking, it's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. But Matt said to her, listen, the very first thing you must do is come to terms with who Jesus Christ is and come to faith in Christ. That's the beginning of rebuilding your life. And so she's, as you can, I'm sure, imagine, she's never heard that before. She never heard about Christ, never heard a meaningful presentation of God. I mean, she didn't trust the Lord at that point. She didn't. She did not. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. But the bottom line is she has been enslaved to this since she was in junior high school. So that's, you know, 20-some years ago or whatever. And so to be able to come out of that, that's not going to happen. And even if she comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that's only the beginning of rebuilding her life. That's why it is so hard. I've worked with drug addicts. I've worked with guys addicted to pornography. It doesn't happen overnight. And there's a constant struggle day by day with the old past habits. Solomon is saying, I intentionally pursued pleasure with a foreign stimulant to my body. Did it work? Well, if you want to answer that question, come back next week. This is Woody. Yes, you yes, might Woody. imagine that I can relate to all that. Yes, recovering alcoholic. Yes, in, in yes. You know, you know exactly. I did started with drinking. Yes. You know, absolutely. No, thank got, you, Woody. That and I got you, sober you. at thirty-five, age thirty-five. That woman reached out at age thirty-two. You know. Wow. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Woody. Let's pray, guys. I've, I've really got to get on here. Thank you, Lord. We're thrilled to study the book of Ecclesiastes as we're on this journey with Solomon as he is probing and exploring all of these areas of the human condition. He's not yet brought you into the picture. You'll do that later on. But, Lord, it just reminds us in our world of 2023, this is extremely relevant because so many people are living their lives like this. God is not in the picture. Those who are very bright pursuing academic careers are finding frustration, sorrow, and sadness because they can't master everything. Lord, we thank you for Jesus because it is the, the finished work of Jesus on Calvary's cross, his resurrection, that can begin that transformational process where we begin with you very much in the picture, in our finiteness, with all that is a part of being fallen creatures, we new creations in Christ, we begin to find that fulfilling meaning and purpose and joy of life with you in the picture. The box is not closed. There is a God who's revealed himself. We can know him, have a relationship with him, have fellowship with him because of Jesus. And that is ultimately the only thing that brings meaning and purpose to life. I pray for that 32-year-old girl. I pray that as she has heard the gospel, she understands it, but, Lord, she's not ready to do it. And what she said to Matt was, then I have to give up everything I have. Oh, what a ridiculous comment. But, Lord, help her to see that she's not giving up anything. She's being freed from bondage. Help her to see that. And I just pray for her today. Pray for Matt. 
as he continues that, that talk with her. So, Lord, I just commit to each one of these men to you, those guys online, as well as here in the room. We are your salt. We are your light. We've come to faith in Christ. We can represent you in this dark world to peoples that need to hear the gospel, the need to find the meaning and purpose and fulfillment that only Jesus can bring. So it's in your name we pray this. Amen.